Hello, everyone. I am DJ Ambush with the numbers in X-Ray FM. Representative Janelle Bynum represents House District 51, which includes Southern Multnomah and Northern Clackamas counties. Representative Bynum joined the Oregon House in 2016. And I'm Jefferson Smith, and I'm with Ambush. Representative Bynum is a leader in the POC caucus in the legislature and the co-chair of the Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform. That's a bunch of words. We'll talk about what that means. And she's with us today to talk about that special session that just happened and what more is to come. Thank you for joining us. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling I got a lot of adrenaline running through my blood here. (laughs) How come? What's causing the adrenaline? Um, You know, we're not only um, dealing with police reform, we're also um, working on getting direct relief to African-American communities. Um, I'm also mothering (laughs) and um, (laughs) looking at all the things my kids are leaving around the house. And so there's, you know, there's that. And then um, my husband and I are still business owners. And so we're trying to make sure we take care of our employees and our customers. So there are a lot of balls in the air. What adjustments have you, have you had to make in that respect as business owners? Is that McDonald's franchise, I believe? Right. Um, you know, it's really interesting. We haven't had to make a lot of adjustments because we've always been a people first organization. We recognize that many of the restaurants across the country um, employ black and brown people. So our policies have been centered on um, ensuring the dignity of our workers. Um, That is one of the reasons that I got into the legislature and that I got into politics was because sometimes you can be a part of a, a larger organization and people start drinking the Kool-Aid and they forget that they're just one generation out of the cotton fields, right? So I've had to remind some of, some of my colleagues that, uh, for instance, on um, paid family leave, um, there's no reason for us to oppose that. These were our mothers and grandmothers just a generation ago. So we look in our kitchens and we see who's there. Mm. It's black and brown women. Mm. Representative Bynum, Maybe jumping ahead a little or maybe a lot or maybe jumping back a little or maybe a lot. Is it time? I noticed that California just passed a bill to at least take an initial explore, an initial exploratory step towards towards actual reparations. Is that something that the state of Oregon should start seriously exploring now? I was advised to read Nicole Hannah-Jones's article in the uh, New York Times, I think the weekend edition, um, where she laid out a very clear case for that. I think what you can look at is, uh, we were just having a conversation about this yesterday, this idea of race neutrality in our policies. And I push back on that and say, there's no such thing as race neutrality. Um, You know, we were advocating for the Oregon CARES Fund And anytime that you put a specific group um, label on money, you have to be able to justify its narrow purpose. And so, um, you know, in in making the case for this, I'm saying that in this country, when you're allocating money or resources, when you're doing anything, the default is white. And it rarely gets to us. It rarely, the money, the the positive things rarely get to us and the negative things always find their way to us. 
So, um, so I have more reading to do. Um, I can't answer your question directly, but what I view my job is, is to untangle that web of um, policies and practices and thoughts that continue to ensnare us um, disproportionately in the criminal justice system, continue to deny us economic justice, and really have put us back 400 years um, so that, you know, essentially we can never catch up. I, I was watching, and it may be, and this is part of the dynamic that I'm really curious about, and I think it's a dynamic that impacted the legislative discussion, mm-hmm. that uh, it may be that it that white people need to advance and advocate for reparations and and some of that burden needs to fall not on only impacted communities, but on communities who have done the impacting uh, to push for uh, moral justice. And and, and that has occurred to me. But at the same time, I felt out of my own depth in calling my own play Mm -hmm. or saying that I have the answer of who should be calling the tune. And this dynamic that I hope that we'll get back to is the is the question of to what degree should white allies mm-hmm. and, and, and POC allies and indigenous allies who are not black, to what degree they should tuck in behind you and to what degree they or we should be advocating to allow you space to show leadership to make the deal so your voice doesn't always have to be the most loud and the most demanding, but you can be the one that is convening the uh, convening the energy. Uh, and I don't know if you have immediate thoughts to that. And I'm happy yeah, to refer to Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. So first is my philosophy is many hands make light work. So I'm an inclusive leader, and I just say everybody who wants to jump in the hot tub and do the work, I, you know, you have my blessing. Let's let's get the work done, especially since I think um, I've not always been in the rooms of power. So I don't always know what they look like and I don't always have those relationships, but white allies might. And so that's where they can be helpful. The second thing I'll say is um, white people um, and to some extent other racial groups need to get over the idea that they did it on their own because the system allows you benefits. It allows you the benefit of the doubt. It allows you the benefit of the the ability to um, build on previous generations' wealth. And without that, um, it's very difficult to get ahead. I see it even in my own family. Um, My family was not um, very wealthy but I look at the opportunities that I was afforded because my grandparents on both sides owned their land. And that has allowed me to progress and have a safety net that someone who's always been in an apartment does not have, right? So get over this idea that you're a self-made person because it's BS. That's the place to start. And it is the, uh, 
Rukiah Adams, I know we all know, gave mm-hmm. her TEDx talk and did their arithmetic on the aggregate wealth yeah. in the black community and the African American community uh, around you know post Civil War time and compared it to now. Right. And when you look at the backdrop of loans being allowed, house subsidies, mm-hmm. etc., you know, reading the color of law, etc., recognizing that there are so many white Americans who were born into six figures worth of wealth, and so many black Americans who are dealing with uh, social negative debt. wealth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's. It is, um, it is fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating what um, coming out of college, for instance, with no debt can do for your career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very interesting to, you know, be able to be a working professional and not have to send money home to your family. There's also... Um, you know, sometimes when I'm in the Judiciary Committee, I often talk about the fact that we are transferring wealth out of the Black community into rural counties because we're sending able-bodied people to be housed in our prisons who would otherwise be gainfully employed were it not for certain choices and circumstances. Um, and every one of those people is, is the loss of wealth in our community. And so as we talk about, um, you know, adjusting in our, in our upcoming budget, uh, you know, I say, I, I don't really have a lot of sympathy for um, the, the larger question of job losses as it relates to prison. I have sympathy for those people whose families depend on that. I certainly have sympathy there. But the amount of wealth that is being transferred out of the black community and brown communities in particular um, is, is staggering. And um, it's, one more, it's one more piece of the puzzle when you talk about generational wealth or, or the lack of it. How do you feel about the possibilities uh, for change in this moment? Um, as, as a person in public service, I'm ever the optimist. Um, I, I get a little cautious when I see things, um, for instance, like the Black Lives Matter protests being co-opted by people with other interests, um, outside agitators coming in. One of the things that, you know, has me thinking this morning is the whole issue with the press and how the press now feels targeted or they feel like they are victims in this fight as well. And the moment they become victims and no longer attempting to be impartial observers, they will miss things. So I worry about that. Um, I, I worry. What do you worry they'll miss? They will see their own um, hurt and they'll miss that perhaps it was not a person with the true mission of advancing the Black Lives Matter cause, um, an agitator um, doing something in the crowd that will trigger the police. That's what they could miss. What's a, the highest priority for you, just bouncing off Ambush's question, what's the highest or one of the highest priorities or prior, number of priorities in your mind to advance the Black Lives Matter cause? 
I'm all about intergenerational wealth, pure and simple. So it means that our children are educated, meaning that we are no longer um, okay with 70% of our black kids graduating from Oregon high schools. Um, we're, we're no longer okay with the amount of debt college students are, are incurring. We're no longer okay with the amount of incarceration of our black men and our boys. Um, what has recently entered um, the forefront of my mind is disproportionate discipline in schools, which is where we see the school to prison pipeline. Um, and really in this moment, what, what growth can we um, experience through the COVID conversation about how we access healthcare? What support did you need to make some of these things happen? What, what can the public do to get involved? You know, I took, I think I took a little bit of heat in the public for not being aggressive enough on the first round of um, police accountability bills. But here's the thing. I need people to study, on, study up on the system, the system that I'm given to work in, and to work the system for what it is. So what that means is we got about a week's notice, a week to 10 days notice that we were going to go into special session which I would say is wholly insufficient for making good policy. So you take this week and then you do something with it. In that week, we had very little public testimony. We didn't have the same level of interest that say the city of Portland had. You know, they had thousands of people signing up. And my question to our staff was, why don't we have the same number of people signing up and writing in? And, and the risk that I mentioned to PDX Forward just a couple of nights ago is when you don't have uh, public input and when you don't have time for robust debate, you open yourself up for the courts to overturn your laws when somebody sues. So the courts, we have to create a record of legislative intent and public intent in order for the courts to rely on that to defend the laws that we build. So people need to understand how to use um, OLIS, the Oregon Legislative Information System, sign up for when the committee is having hearings. Just get the emails about what the agenda is and write in when we're considering laws. It's a simple, just a simple email is all it takes. I think that's one of the most important dynamics that I also noticed. You had a record-setting number of people showing up to testify. I think it was 700 people to mm -hmm. testify in Portland, Portland City Council. Mm -hmm. And nothing like that in the legislature. But some of that I'm concerned about is actually barriers that are placed yes. in, in the way of engagement. Yes. Not only is it an hour away, not only does it happen during the workday, not only do not enough people know who their state representative is because the media doesn't cover it yes. as much. What do you see of some of the barriers, some of the reasons why there hasn't been as meaningful engagement in the state as there has been in the city? So I say that systems uh, are delivering the exact um, outputs they were designed to. So... This system is designed not to have a lot of public input. The system is designed to concentrate power. The system is designed to only allow in people who can afford to serve. So to me, it takes a, it, it takes a re, um, 
a redesign of the whole structure. One of the things I've done in my district is I, um, when we were meeting up, I have walking meetings um, every every um, Tuesday and Thursday, every Monday and Thursday, um, I would meet at Clackamas Town Center and any constituent, any lobbyist, any public person um, could walk around the mall with me for 15 minutes as a way of being accessible. Um, I'm on social media in my own way. Um, and then I try to do a lot of radio interviews. Um, so thank you for this. That, that is my preferred uh, format um, to just try to demystify the process of state lawmaking and, and to bring it home and to let people know that this is really where the rubber hits the road. Since you're on social media, give out your tags real quick so people can oh. follow you. <laughs> my, my main one that my kids give me a whole lot of grief about is, is Facebook. Um, but I'm, I'm Janelle Bynum on Facebook, and then okay. I'm Bynum for the win on um, Twitter. The Twitter handle is managed by my staff. I, I try not to get engaged in snarky fights with people, and so... <laughs> Um, I'm a little more homey on Facebook, but I, I say what I think. Okay. Okay. Um, legislature just finished his first special session. Right. Um, I guess it said first to be clear, there will be more. Um, what made the biggest impact? I think the, the looming issue over the first special session was that for me, I expected us to meet much sooner. Um, mm -hmm. I was on the joint committee on coronavirus response. I think that was in March or April. I, I can't even remember now. Um, and I thought that we were going to have legislation come out very shortly after we finished that committee. And we ended up in a position, and I'm not quite sure why, where we had more executive orders rather than legislation coming through. So I think that that loomed over. Um, you have to get four caucuses to agree to come. The governor can call you, but as we've seen, our, our rules don't um, force anybody to show up. Mm. So that was um, definitely um, something that hung over. And then the, the tension in the air about police accountability was heavy. Connecting that to the, the thing you were saying before, who was engaged in the process? Who was being heard? Who did have influence? Mm. So it was a really, um, and this I would say is what I was most proud of. Um, the DAs were at the table. The police unions were at the table. The uh, Attorney General's office was at the table. There was uh, the um, attorneys for um, civil, civil rights attorneys were at the table. So um, Republicans were at the table, Democrats were at the table and um, police chiefs and sheriffs. So I have not seen in my career in the Judiciary Committee, I have not seen all of those people um, weighing in on an issue where they weren't fighting. And to me, by design, I wanted to tell everyone and, and ensure everyone that, A, they would always have a voice. I didn't necessarily have to agree with it, but they would always be welcome at my table. And two, um, 
they each had a role in the outcomes that we're seeing in this state as it relates to how the police interact with the public. So that I think was um, really important for people to know. And it's one of those behind the scenes types of things. The, the way I described it on my Facebook post is that I needed to like smoke out all the people who were going to cause me trouble. Like weed or like, no. <laughs> okay. no Jefferson, I like my Bible and I like pantyhose. I hate my thing. to smoke out with everybody. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure it out. No, I mean like fumigate. I like, get it. I get it. I get it. So, so you have... Uh, so I've served on the Judiciary Committee, and I have an idea of who engages in those conversations, yeah. right? And if there is some bill that is proposed to, you know, some tough-on-crime bill or some opposite of that kind of bill, that it is the DAs, it is the sheriffs, it is the chiefs of police, occasionally it is the police union who bring power to bear. There, It is harder to find an entre- you know, a, a lobbyist, a group that has somebody who's there session after session, wandering the halls day after day, setting up meetings, who is advocating for structural reform, right? Because the structure has its power. The thing that isn't yet a structure, it doesn't yet have the same kind of power. Who is ab- And if you don't have a whole bunch of people coming down to testify, it seemed to me that a lot of the burden was being placed on the People of Color Caucus in the legislature to be those advocating for change, maybe with a few civil rights attorneys to help with a bunch of other legislators who I would talk to, we would talk to, and they'd say, oh, whatever Lou Frederick says, we're with him. Whatever Janelle Bynum says, we're with her. And that was that was sort of the dynamic. Who had your back? Who was who was helping make it easier? So they all did. Yeah. They all did. And what I said was there were no emergent jackasses trying to disrupt the process. So so here's the thing. The DAs want to have good cops so that their their cases don't get thrown out. Okay, They have an interest in that. The, the police officers have an interest in coming to work in a safe and, he- safe and healthy environment where the rules are clear. The chiefs of police want to make sure that they hire the best people, they can train the best people, and if they have a bad one, they can get rid of them when they need to. The uh, civil rights attorneys want to make sure that when when their clients come to them with the case, that they have enough that the bar isn't so low that people can get out of accountability by saying, I feared for my life. So, So to be honest, everybody had something, and to me, as as a lawmaker, the skill, the, the leadership skill is how do you get people to the table and keep them there, have them reveal what their interests are and create an environment that assures them that their interests will be addressed. That's the skill. And that's the, that's the long-term framework that needed to be laid if I'm ever going to get anything accomplished over the next 12 months. That's, it's like cleaning up the kitchen before you cook. We had a dirty kitchen. And I refused to work in a dirty kitchen with a week's notice. And I think the good news is, I think the good news is, is that you had, you had a chance to be and you are sort of in charge of the kitchen. And a lot of people, I think, did defer to that. And the question is, are all the are there is there enough force that is being applied not only from law enforcement but also from reform transformation you know people want meaningful change enough energy from those advocates to either balance or to overwhelm the entrenched forces of the status quo 
So I think um, the one that is really missing to me um, is when I, when I talked about, uh, I answered the question uh, a few nights ago about how, does, how do we change police culture? And my answer was it's top down and it's bottom up. So as a business person, I know that I set the tone for my organization. Um, in, this, in this instance, it's the elected officials, it's the leadership in police departments, it's also the public. So that's the top down part. The bottom up is where we're soft. And that was my, my letter to, um, to some of the police leadership today was, where are your rank and file guys that join the profession for all the right reasons and feel like they may get squeezed out by the guys that don't belong there? Where is that uprising? That's what I need to see. And then the picture becomes more complete. Were there any uh, responses to that? Did you get any leads on what might be going on at that level? You know, not to be sexist, but generally when I talk to my husband, I have to say it a couple of times. He may say that about me too. Um, <laughs> Wait, what were you saying? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not dissimilar from asking women to run for office. We typically have to be asked two or three times, right? So when you're trying to get, you know, a male-dominated profession to open up to be vulnerable to some extent and to have a cry for change, that, that's a big ask, and I recognize that. So what I said was, whatever you need for me to do to open up that, those lines of communication, I am here because I want good people in the profession. I don't, I don't want the, the, as I've said, the least worst option. I mm. want good people of good character. Mm. During the session, were there any particular priorities that Republicans push for? They um, wanted, um, there was some COVID uh, immunity from lawsuits in cases of um, negligence. And um, that was a priority on the House side of um, Leader Drazen. So that was kind of the biggest thing that they wanted. They were also very interested in police reform. Um, we have two really good members. I would say they're all good members, but um, two colleagues that I had a lot of respect for, representatives um, Noble and Lewis, who were very interested in being in on the, on the police conversation. So that was, I would say, to some extent, a priority for them. Any particular elements within the, the police accountability, trans, public safety transformation, police reform bucket that they were advocating to make more bold? I think what they wanted to do was to have a thoughtful conversation about the use of force continuum. So what's, what I found really interesting was um, that as people called for a ban on chokehold or chokeholds or a ban on this or a ban on that, what they explained to me, and, and I think in the, in the upcoming sessions that we'll have, not sessions, but hearings that we'll have next week, what they explained to me was if you take away what's considered non-lethal, then all I have is the really soft stuff and then I have the gun. And so 
they cautioned me to, to ask what's on that spectrum and how do we expect it to be used? So for instance, um, a baton is considered non-lethal, but like for me, I'm like, well, that, that, that doesn't have, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that doesn't feel non-lethal. Um, tear gas, some of them explained, um, was a non-lethal way of, um, ensuring that people's lives were not at risk. Um, you know, I think the jury's still out <laughs> on, on the usefulness of that, but that, those were things that they cautioned me on. So I think their interest was more around making sure we didn't make a knee-jerk reaction based on what is only happening in Portland, um, but taking a look at the state. And, and that um, was something I was committed to. There was some mixed messaging uh, regarding the use of tear gas. Is, do we have any clarity on that? Do we know why that's still allowable? Um, for that very reason. So sometimes you can ban something and you can be very specific and then the police will just use something similar. <laughs> so you kind of need to understand what you're banning. So is it the substance? Is it the effect or is it the use of a whole range of um, materials in that, in that category? One thing that is, is really important to me, the central question was, do we have a problem with the laws that we have now? Or do we have a problem with the abuse of those laws? Or do we not have a law at all? And People couldn't quite answer that question for me. So I'm asking, what am I fixing? I know things are broken. Things are bad. But what am I fixing? Well, let's get a little bit into that. We've had a chance. Uh, Ambush has, ha has had a chance. I've had a chance. We've had a chance together to hear from now a lot of people, right? And, and also my you know, sort of key extracurricular activity these days is trying to communicate with civil rights lawyers, people who understand this, understand this field, uh, some people who've also been working with you to figure out how can we meet this moment uh, and, and be relevant and, and, and be sort of in favor of justice. Uh, when, uh, when I look at the bills, and, and I will say, and you were saying you took some heat, you know, for maybe not going far enough. If I imagined six weeks ago, Somebody said, hey, here, they're going to propose six bills. They're going to get done, I think, five of them with, plus a task force. They're going to weaken each one of those bills, okay, you know, at, at least in the, in the eyes of a reformer. Uh, but they're all going to, they're all, you know, five of those things are going to pass. And they're going to get that done in like a few weeks. I would have been amazed and dazzled and impressed. I found myself as it was happening saying, well, I can tell the lobbying process where the law enforcement folks, the good news is they're working together. The bad news is there isn't as much bottom up. The bad news is there isn't as much public testimony from the people who are engaged around reform. There isn't enough or as much, at least, uh, entrenched lobby force among reform forces. Right. The status quo has more built in power. I could tell that because just looking at the count, like each each amendment I saw was not an amendment. To, you know, to push for reparations, right? Each, each amendment I saw was to make it more manageable for district attorney, sheriffs, police chiefs, the police union. Uh, the were there any any of those changes, any of those amendments that you thought were most uh, 
were most obvious or things you think that people need to most be watchful for if they want to strengthen something in the future? So the, the conversation on chokeholds um, and just uh, holds in general, I think is something that we need to watch for. What has been a gift um, has actually been the gift of time because I read, I think it was this weekend, that what we really needed to get at was an officer's duty to preserve the health of a person. So you, you could ban any kind of hold all you want. Once they're dead, they're dead. But the obligation for an officer to turn a person over to make sure that they're breathing is to me a much stronger and not to impose any type of hold that would restrict their breathing to me is much stronger legislation than banning a sexy word. You have to give them a duty to protect the life of the person, even as they're arresting them. That's a much higher bar. That's a much higher bar. And it's one that we can associate outcomes. How many people died when you were handcuffing them? So this is the duty. This is the. This is the duty to intervene. Where, so as we all saw horrifically in, in the George, George Floyd instance, if there's a police officer doing the right thing, then another officer has a requirement to step in and stop that thing. Am I hearing you right? So, so it's a hybrid. So it's not only the arresting officer. So the arresting officer, if they're putting handcuffs on them or, or whatever, or have a hood over them, you know, um, I can't remember. I think it was a New York Times article that talked to, about you know, turning people over, not hooding them, um, for the person directly touching the, the person, that is their duty. The secondary part is if people around them are noticing that the person is not breathing, then they have a duty to intervene. That, um, that to me gets at ensuring that we maintain a person's humanity even as they are being arrested. There's something that uh, strikes me kind of odd just about having conversations about (laughs) discussing how to handle someone's life. Um, Of course, we we go back to that person even being recognized as a person and not just a situation or a thing that we're handling in that moment. Um, A lot of legislation that's being discussed right now centers on undoing or you know creating a new understanding around these circumstances but it seems like the core of this is training at some point so is there any conversation around training like what part of the training has led the led them to believe that it's okay not to check on the person that they just finished choking out like how how do we get why are we you know doing so much repair and where's the conversation around don't changing the training So for me, and that's a much softer concept for people to grasp, um, is that I've maintained throughout this process that we are dealing with the dignity of a human life. And that to me is something that spans across um, the political spectrum. And that is how my Republican colleagues tend to um, want to be more engaged and be on board with it. Um, and I think when we start off with a, a common respect for one another, then we can get to good legislation. But as long as you think I'm a dog and I need to be tied up, I can pass all the laws I want. Mm. But until you recognize my humanity, we won't make any progress. And that to me is the central point. 
you know, I asked um, one of the former police chiefs, I said, you know, what's really puzzling to me is um, as we try to de-escalate, you know, I analyze how did we even get here? And when black people started protesting, why is the response one that makes you believe that I'm a threat to the state? I'm an enemy of the state. Why was the response so much different from like the women's march? Oh, well, it was organized. Well, there's, you don't have to be organized. <laughs> you, you don't. Right. You can just be people that are outside and you want to march. That, that, that shouldn't determine how you see me as a human as to whether I can, you know, come and mosey up to you and, and say I'm going to be there at 3 o'clock and I'm going to be super organized. No. No. But that is the greater issue. We have to be seen as humans. Uh, qualified immunity, one of the bigger issues. Has anyone taken that up? So Representative Wildey is working on that. I think that's a much broader conversation. I think it's taking place more in the uh, Congress. Uh, but he's super uh, interested in that. He just joined the Judiciary Committee, so he's he's working on that. What party and where from is, is Representative Wilby? Uh, Wilby is from the Eugene area, and he's a, a House Democrat. And how come more in Congress than in the state? Um, I think right now the emphasis is on... Uh, the tear gas and crowd control. It was on the arbitration. Um, see, let me let me just remind you, um, Jefferson. This this is not a black people's problem, but black people are at the table trying to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is one of the essence, like the essence of what I think is the important and interesting dynamic that we're talking about, right? Right. So so like, how much work do you expect me to do to to unravel four hundred years? That's that's like you that's know. even and 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 that's actually the very first question, right? That's right? sort of the first question. It's like how much how much burden do you want versus how much power do you want, right? And where do you want the power and where do you want or not want the burden? And that that actually is to me one of the most interesting pieces of the dynamic. And we saw a similar thing in the city council, right? Where like everybody's been looked at and like white allies up and down the street saying, oh, well, whatever Joanne Hardesty says, I'm with that, right? Don't need to ask me. I'm Joanne Hardesty's friend. Because do you don't want to do the work. Right. And, and this is, and, and I, yeah, I'm not, and I'm not here to back up white people. That's not my objective. <laughs> my objective is trying to figure out. And I think there's a lot of people though trying to figure out the moves, right? Where it's, because it's, it can be a comfortable place to try to say, I will defer to the leaders of color, right? Yeah. So, and, but, but, but yeah, so say more. So, so deferring to us, thank you. Um, but this, this is y'all's work. Yeah. Um, the, the white men that I look at in the, um, house chamber, you know, cutting deals, it's right up there in the mural, you know, you saw it, um, that this is all they're doing. Right. So we're trying to unravel that. And I, I get that people are used to change happening very quickly, but let me remind you of something. A lot of times when, Black people ask for laws, we'll, we'll get them, and then they come back to bite us. So crack cocaine, the laws for uh, crack cocaine, you know, the, the sentencing laws were much stronger than powder cocaine, uh, three strikes, 
um, zero tolerance in terms of like saying the N word, you know, who gets in trouble? The black kids. So, you know, I, I, I get a little skeptical when I hear, um, when I hear my white colleagues who want to be outraged, they want to share their outrage and they want to move things along, but um, they are rarely the ones that bear the brunt of the mistake. Yeah, I, that's a, that's a seems like a hugely important piece of the dynamic. And then, from where should we expect boldness, right? If it's do, do we expect boldness from uh, Black Indigenous people of color, uh, or do we say no? Don't expect all the boldness there. They didn't solve, they didn't cause all the problem. Do we expect boldness from white leadership because they almost certainly bore more bear more responsibility for causing problems, right? Or do we say yeah, but you might mess it up, right? I mean, I think, and I'm not suggesting I have the answer to that, but I do think that's a critical piece of the dynamic, right? I mean, I'll say, like, I think qualified immunity ought to be part of the discussion. I think reparations ought to be part of the discussion. I think that the use of force statute ought to be part of the discussion. We have one of the more permissive uses of force statute. I mean, as you said, if you just if you just create like a police review commission, but what they're reviewing is the same standards and practices and the same laws that we have right now, well, you can have all the review committees you want. And they'll just say, okay, yeah, they follow the procedure. They follow the law. So I think we do need a, 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 a stronger database. I do think that there needs to be deep reform. And I'll even go one further. I think we need an analysis about how do we transform uh, public safety systems, not only with police, but you look at fire departments. Fire departments were born to put out fires. Now 3% of fire department department calls are about putting out fires. And so how do we have a new public safety system, which isn't just a war department and a house fire department, but recognizing so many of the challenges we face are mental health and physical health. And how do we make sure first responders aren't just coming out with a gun or something, you know, or, or a hose? Yeah, it's... Um... So, so relating back to the fire department example, one of the proposals that we've received was to reverse train. So if you want to be a firefighter, you go to firefighter school first. You go, go to, you know, Clackamas Community College or Chemeketa and you get your fire science associates and then you volunteer and then you get hired. But right now we're doing it in reverse of that on the police forces. And so it's, I think the whole conversation is about reimagining what we want um, and finally feeling like we have a say in the outcomes, that we have a say in the structure. Where boldness comes, I think, is um, from a variety of leaders. I'm, I'm learning my own leadership style, which is very calm, very measured. I am, I am an engineer by training. Um, I'm, my fist is up in, in a different way. Um, I tend to work on the ground level from a structural level, and I require the help of those people who are going to be out there marching in the streets, the people who are out there saying, oh, hell no, this is not going to work. Um, but it's, it, it takes multiple personalities, I think, to drive the boldness, and I don't want to take that on. That's, that's not my strength. My strength is getting six bills across the finish line almost unanimously in a week and everybody's still at the table. And so what I hear you saying is you want some of that fire not having to come just from you. You want some of that change energy to come from the citizenry, to come from people who saw it's the It's got to come from the people. 
And it's got to come from the, the police officers themselves. It's got to come from the DAs. It's got to. So speaking of those people in the street, uh, protesters make a strong argument that tinkering around the edges of the existing institutions isn't nearly enough, that reform isn't enough, that we need to transform public safety entirely, even starting again. How do we get to that new place? I think they need to elect leaders who have an understanding of how important that is. Um, you know, and it's not just electing black leaders who understand that, it's electing white leaders and holding white leaders accountable for that. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> it's really interesting. I had a, a mental health bill proposal um, to increase the number of mental health providers uh, of color in the, in the state. And you know who was on board with me was Multnomah County. They were on board. But, you know, Clackamas County said, well, we don't really know what you're talking about. And I'm thinking, gosh, this is, this is such a disconnect. Um, and who's holding them accountable? It's not just me. You don't need to just elect black leaders or POC leaders. You need to hold the white ones accountable for not having delivered over the past 50, 100, 200 years. Which Clackamas County elected officials should we go after next? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not. <laughs> you should just tell them to read up on the proposal and act like they understand that black people need mental health supports. Okay. That ain't that hard. So you said something about um, holding the white leadership accountable, not just electing black leaders. So on the national scale, national scope here. There's been a call for Biden to pick a black woman running mate. And unless he does that, we're going to hold the vote. Um, I think there's there's a little dishonesty in the power dynamic there and the ability to hold the vote, especially with who we have in the office. But what ways of, uh, of, of creating accountability are there in this particular situation? <sighs> Wow, that that's that's so like multi-layered there. Um, let me relate it back to Oregon. Um, there was a proposal to have independent investigations come out of the AG's office, transfer them to the AG's office. And I rejected that proposal because um, I was not confident that given two options, I was picking the best. That we had an AG's office that is structured to meet those outcomes, regardless of who is in there. So what I think it means is we have to be, um, we have to finally say that, we have to finally understand that our votes count for something. We should make demands on, some, on, on these things, but we shouldn't be stupid. So all of the people who stayed home and did not vote, cast their, their voice, their vote one way or the other, Trump or whoever, we lost the courts. We lost the courts. And in the state of Oregon, when the attorney general seat is up, if we don't understand the, um, the impact of that position, we are continuously getting the least worst option. So I, I don't know exactly how to answer your question except to say 
then we need to be deliberate with our votes and we need to understand the potential outcome. We cannot afford to lose another 30 years of the courts. We can't. And bring it back to Oregon, the, uh, as you said, you got hearings coming up next week. There was this, the idea to shift investigations from district attorney's offices, district attorneys who have such a close relationship to police officers. The police officers are almost, my dad was a DA, right? He said that his police officers were basically his clients. And then being asked to investigate his own clients, it's a pretty hard thing to expect them to do. And the proposal was to shift that to the attorney general's office. The attorney general would be down to do it. They'd want the resources to do it. They'd want the you know investigative staff and the money. Uh, and you on the Portland uh, forward call, the PDX forward call uh, meeting, you know, the other night, so well, you weren't sure the attorney general's office was the best place for it. If it's not the DA's office or if it's not the attorney general's office, where should it go? How should those investigations of police use of force cases, use of deadly force cases, where should those happen? So I don't really care about the where. I care about the who. And the state has yet to develop a core of civil rights attorneys who will follow up on cases and get outcomes. The state has not invested in Boley. You saw that with the Michael Fesser outcome. He went to Boley. Our civil rights division there was decimated. So if the state hasn't invested in the most basic of places, what gives me confidence that just transferring jurisdiction from one place to another another state agency that I'm going to get any different results. Well, so I don't care about the where. It, it sounds insufficient, right? It, it just, just shifting the where doesn't sound like enough, but I also, I still wonder if it's necessary. I guess advocates wonder if it's necessary that it ha, are you going to get pretty, I mean, maybe, you know, you elect, you can elect a Mike Schmidt in Multnomah County, but you're not doing that in 36 out of 36 Oregon counties to, to elect that kind of, that kind of person to the district attorney's office. What so kind of I'm not going to get that answer in a week. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, going forward, though, in this in the next round, like I totally understand why you needed to give it some thought, right, to be able to say, hey, are you actually gonna be able to hire these lawyers or whether whether at the Bureau of Labor and Industries, whether they're in the attorney general's office, the, the Oregon uh, Department of Justice, wherever they are, are you actually going to get the money and get these lawyers and train them up who will be committed? That's like that is totally fair. And to be clear, like I think there should be huge applause personally. And I recognize I'm offering an opinion here, but uh, huge applause for all the work. I mean, you all did historic work in a short period of time. And I think all of you acknowledged that there's more work to do, right? And and in, in, after the session. So what, we're, what I'm sort of wondering is, what's that next piece, right? What, what do you need advocates when people are showing up to the legislature to testify? What are you wanting to hear, right? Or who are you wanting to hear from? What are the key questions they need to be engaging with? So what I have proposed is um, these are the potential concepts that I wanted to cover, and I'm going to cheat off my little sheet here, okay? To close the loopholes on arbitration, the bill that was 1604, um, there were uh, people that wrote in that said this isn't strong enough. Okay, Senator Frederick wanted that bill to pass as he had passed it so that he could get that and check that off the list. Incremental progress. The second was use of force, banning chokeholds, ensuring that um, 
the health and safety of anyone that you've arrested or is in your uh, custody. The third is peaceful protest, um, uh, banning the use of tear gas and understanding what the range of non-lethal munitions looks like and deciding as a community whether we want to continue that whole um, range of choices. Um, we needed to close up the duty to intervene and establish what the responsibilities of supervisors was because we didn't get that. Uh, there's a piece in the Colorado bill, I think it's SB 20-217, which authorizes the Attorney General to investigate uh, patterns and practices of discrimination and disparate outcomes. There's a, there's a piece in that bill that I think is just beautiful legislation that helps us look at an agency level. Right now, we have no ability to look at agencies that are um, mistreating people. The next one was um, community policing and independent review boards. Um, you know, exploring that concept, uh, giving independent police review boards teeth um, and all the tools that they would need. The demilitarization of police, including their uniforms and, and training practices. Looking at number seven was hiring practices and standards, looking at statewide psych standards and polygraphs. And then the next was um, how we use um, and recruit reserve officers. So that was the initial list of open items that we felt like we had um, pretty exhaustive, but we're going to start hearings next week to get a baseline of information. How aggressive does that sound? It sounds hugely helpful and yeah. and a really useful list. Ambush, what's your thought? No, I was going to say that was that was the playbook. That was it. That was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. That, I mean, that's your girl, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you laid it out. The thing, the, the things that I, I would I would amplify Ambush's question about qualified immunity. I think that's a really interesting one. The uh, uh, the use of I force. think that's going to be a twenty twenty one type of bill. And then and then the other was uh, the use of deadly force, not only chokehold, not only use of force chokeholds, but the use of deadly force. Uh, when is it authorized? Because the, the loophole in the most recent chokehold bill was, well, you can still do a chokehold if you are if you would have been authorized to use deadly force. Well, if the statute that allows you to use deadly force is too permissive. Right. Well, then we'll be both shooting people and giving chokeholds more than we ought to be. Uh, the other is, I mean, I, I, I threw out the little plug for reparations. I do think, you know, in six months, people might be talking about climate change. Right now, the world is talking about black lives. There is a, there is a moment right now that anybody who considers themselves a moral actor in the world, you know, should, should want to lean in and, and put wind at your back to make your job easier rather than harder. Uh, and then, uh, and then, and then the stuff Ambush was asking about, about transformation, you know, anything that, that, uh, oh, of course, investigation investigation of the uh, uh, of deadly force cases, not only where that happens, but how they have the resources and actually do do it. I think that's really I think that's a that's a really good one, an important one. Uh, I, I want to mention in please. one of the, the sessions that we're going to hold, um, we are going to talk about jury instructions. Interesting. Hmm. Because it matters what you tell the jury the bar is. And uh, if the bar is very low, so I think some of the instructions are, would a reasonable police officer in this situation have made this decision? Mm. That's a whole different question from whether this person lost their life senselessly. Yeah. So we, ha we have to excavate 
we have to excavate. And I, I don't know if people are interested in taking the time to learn, but I don't think you can dismantle a system if you don't know what you're dismantling. I, I just, I don't like a lot of loopholes. I like that, that thing to be tied up so tight like a Thanksgiving turkey, like, mm, yeah, that's going to pass the courts. You, you can sue me all day and I'm going to win. Like, I like that kind of legislation, not some stuff that's going to be held up for 20 years in the courts. What do you put on your turkey? <laughs> I put butter and Cajun seasoning, throw it on the smoker. <laughs> You know, of the I, I can't speak. I mean, of, between the two of us, Ambush is the more accomplished, uh, the more accomplished chef. Ambush, are you from yeah. DC? I, I I am from Philly. Was born in DC. Born in DC. Yeah, spent spent a good good amount of my life down there in DC. I haven't tried the uh, butter and Cajun. I, I've recently uh, done a two day brine with some um, apple cider vinegar, and it oh. came out. Yeah, it came out excellent. Okay. Hey, All right. Don't hurt us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This was this was this was amazing. Very very informative interview. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. I'll pile on. Thank you so much, Representative Janelle Bynum, for joining us. All right. Take care, guys. Be well. Thanks for your service.